Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the Neurohacker Collective podcast. My name is Daniel Schmachtenberger. I'm Director of R&D here at Neurohacker Collective. We are delighted today to be in a discussion with Jamie Wheel, who's the co-founder and uh, director over at Flow Genome in Flow Dojo, and author of the recent best-selling book, Stealing Fire, which is uh, toward a force of understanding what flow states are about, what non-ordinary states of experience and writ large are about, and how to achieve them with the future with more people in uh, higher states of experience might look like. Uh, Jamie has become a recent friend and a really fascinating background in search and rescue and extreme sports and human performance optimization and functional medicine and there's so many different spaces that relate to what the peak of human experience and human potential that are possible are, uh, including deep exploration into the mystical and the numinous uh, in a scientifically grounded way. And I imagine if you're into neurohacking enough to be on this podcast, you already know about Jamie and the flow genome. So if you are interested in an introduction to what flow states are and why they matter and what non-ordinary states of experience are, uh, I recommend you go watch some of Jamie's other talks on the topic. YouTube has many of them. And read Stealing Fire. Um, because I'm going to assume that people already know that and jump into some of the deeper and more nuanced and maybe more interesting questions. So that's a preface as we head in. Jamie, thank you for being here with us. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Then. So I'm interested that you started out with talking about collective flow states, right? Very specifically with uh, the SEALs you were talking about, not just a flow state that an individual could access that could increase their personal capacity, but a flow state that a group could access where you had individual capacity radically higher, but also group coherence radically higher, which are usually thought of as almost dialectic things, right? Like and someone is in a very deep flow state and they are less attuned to being able to modulate themselves to be coherent with others. Um, or they're very paying attention to others and are maybe less attuned to their own adaptiveness. And this seems profoundly relevant for obviously all teams participating together, but the kind of future of human beings as a whole, right? And civilization as a whole. I would love to hear a little bit, like when we're talking about individual flow states, we can talk about what's going on in an individual physiology and an individual person's brain and, you know, transient hypofrontality and, but what is mediating collective flow states? And um, would just let's speak a little bit more about that. Sure. I think you know, to also clarify, uh, it is that possibility of us actually sinking together to do the impossible. While, while you know, we said in the future and showcase some rather kind of razzle dazzle stories from action sports and special operations and, and that kind of thing. Uh, I think that's the whole premise that together we are stronger, smarter, and better, is certainly the reason we wrote the book and the reason for our organization, the Flow Genome Project. It's not simply ameliorating the worry well in, in isolation. Um, and in fact, if anybody is interested in taking a deep dive into group, group coherence and collective flow states, Keith Sawyer at UNC Chapel Hill, is, uh, he wrote a book called Group Genius, and he is arguably 
um, on the forefront of that specific study. Um, but said simply, I mean, um, the, the possibility that happens when we get outside ourselves. So most states of like ecstasis, which just goes back to the old Greek, you know, anything that takes us outside ourselves, to stand outside oneself, is the functional, original root of ecstasy. Uh, and that within that big umbrella are a bunch of non-ordinary states of consciousness, meaning different than what we would kind of call 21st century worried well, tired wives, stressed, right? And we can change the channels of our neurophysiology, we can get beyond our conventional storytelling and our senses of separation and identification. Once those states happen and we happen to be in proximity with other people, the almost inevitable thing is some degree of connection in a post-rational, right, meaning beyond either or logic or problem solving, um, connection to a, a coherent whole that is something bigger than any of the individuals. And the simplest, most obvious examples of that are anything from the home globetrotters to the Patriots fourth quarter turnaround in the Super Bowl, uh, where everyone is queuing off Brady and everybody, you know, and, and what happened, even though they were getting their asses handed to them, for the majority of the game, they suddenly pulled off what seemed to be superhuman, and it was really more sort of super hyphen human. Um, they were acting from a coherent, sensing, sensing thinking, and feeling um, shared, shared group experience compared to individuals running around, running patterns in place. And, and the, you know, the example we used to start the book is with Deb Group, uh, or U.S. Naval Special Warfare Development Group, more commonly than in the past known as CLT-6, uh, and the ways they both train for and operate in the field in that state. And the idea that literally what they do isn't possible unless they have gone beyond their individual fragmented site. And, in, and they have such a high degree of trust and connection to each other that they're led, literally since sensing, deciding, and acting as a superorganism. And that's generally speaking much harder when we're stuck in our individual separated waiting state cells. So the, the kind of mechanism through which group flow is mediated is just increased bandwidth of the individuals being able to perceive what's going on with each other and make sense of it and then respond because they, they are operating in an individual state where they have increased kind of OODA loop capacity increased bandwidth for perception and response. So that, that's certainly one part of it. I mean, if we roughly maybe thought of it as a three-legged stool, and we could say, hey, one is, I, I get beyond my, fundamentally my psychological separate identity and storytelling. Like, I'm me over here doing my thing, and this guy's over there doing his, and we're actually past that, or, or even before that, as far as sensing and responding. Um, and so this is the no-look pass in basketball, the kind of alley the kind of magic, seamless stuff that comes together when people are so closely oriented. So that's part of it. The next part would be, I mean, and a huge part, is present tense um, synchrony, meaning everything from mirror neurons, so the way I look at you and the way you look at me, and if our movements are in sync or complementary, our brainwaves and firing patterns become more aligned uh, to vagal nerve tone, to heart rate variability, so literally our, fundamentally our physiology in real time is actually becoming more similar because we cue off each other, and that, that old, and I think it's been ascribed to several folks, but Galileo is one of them, where he went into the clockmaker's shop and saw, noticed that on the wall, all the pendulums were swinging, 
in sequence to the biggest one. And that the biggest pendulum actually then basically brings all the others into sync with it. And that was, that finding was echoed at Isade, the Spanish business school, uh, with emergent business leaders, and they were measuring biofeedback, and it, you know, then they tracked, you know, linguistic analysis, and what, you know, what were these folks saying? Was it smarter? Did they talk longer or louder? And all these kind of things. And none of those actually played out, but the thing that did track is that the emergent leaders, the people who come up with the best strategic solutions to complex problems, were the ones who actually regulated their own nervous systems best, and in turn created symphony, actually became the bigger pendulum and got other people into synchrony with them. So we have the move beyond your ego um, and into real-time decision-making response. We have real-time neurophysiological synchrony, meaning we kind of align with each other like the pendulums. And then you've got long-term synchrony, and that's thing, everything from, in fact, a, a colleague of ours who's a, a TED fellow, she's been doing amazing work at the University of Oregon, she's a roller derby queen, and actually did microbiome analysis of the, micro, of the roller derby team. And, and they've done this with lots of other teams, but people who spend long times in close proximity actually end up sharing sort of, you know, third brain um, correlates as well. And then you put all of those things together, and, and that's, at least on the kind of empirical, neurophysiological level, those are some of the, the factors that contribute towards that dropping in together to do the impossible. Yeah, just not to go far on this, but when you look at uh, virtual connection and someone being able to drop into a VR reality and connect with other people. Obviously, we're getting exponentially increasing capacity to do audio video and a little bit of haptic, but it's still so profoundly reduced from the multi-sensory um, and even sub-sensory channels of communication. Like you're talking about mirror neuron effects that are mediated through so many things, but being able to pick up the pheromones, being able to pick up the microbial cloud and actually sync at a microbiome, which is then epigenetically modulating people's protein transcription, I mean, gene transcription and protein synthesis, uh, it's, there's really nothing that it seems like will have the capacity to replace in-person synchrony. Yeah, although, you know, I mean, I'm sure we're back to where we're approaching Act 2 on this, but there was fascinating studies back when kind of Second Life was, was the new kid on the block and they were studying you know, even just neural imaging of people co-locating as avatars. Right. And, a, and a surprising number of those things were still being triggered. There was spatial recognition, there was mirror neuronal activity, all those things, even with relatively kludgy 2010, you know, di digital cells. So everything you're talking about, throw in David Eagleman's haptic regulation suits and, you know, the ability for people to be able to sort of see or feel the stock market based on sensors on their chest, et cetera, the, our ability to have, you know, compelling... Um, coherence prompted in non-local spaces the data technology is, is, I'm sure, you know, only on the rise. To say nothing of, hey, let's take it, let's insulfate a hit of oxytocin and engage in some long-distance eye-gazing. Although I think the simplest one is like Skype and Google Hangouts and everybody have to figure out a corrective optical algorithm so that when you look at the I camera, you're looking at other people's eyes. When you're looking at the screen, you're looking right. down. I'm looking eyes. down at the screen right now, not here. Yeah, that's the glaring. I can't believe we all do this workaround. Yeah. You know, somebody's got to fix it. Okay, so with regard to the collective coherence, you actually mentioned in the book describing it as a, a kind of hive mind, right? People entering this hive mind state where anyone can really count on anyone else to be able to respond in certain very high capacity and also kind of predictable ways, right? And when we think of hive mind, whether we're talking about 
ants or termites or bees, um, all of the members are pretty much interchangeable for all the other members. They're fungible assets, right? And uh, so there's no uniqueness. And whatever uniqueness is there is actually not relevant to what they can count on in each other. So they can assume that they all follow basically the same protocols for gathering food or defending the hive or something like that. And so when you think about something like a sports team, like the, the Globetrotters, they've went through a training where they can assume that anyone that they throw the ball to will be able to do certain kinds of things, right? When you think about dev crew, you can just, they went through, like you mentioned, millions of dollars worth of training to make sure that there are certain capacities they'll all be able to do. So I can see this kind of collective coherence in the resonance phenomenon, because of course, when, when that Galileo and others were looking at the resonance of pendulums, they have to be pendulums that have a pendulum length that allows it to go into resonance, right? It has to be things with with similar wavelength, and then if the wavelength is close enough, they'll go into similar resonance. So what, but if they're on totally different oscillatory cycles, then they're not going to come into synchrony. So when I'm thinking about crews of people who have very different skills, capacities, and orientations than each other, what would, what would collective coherence increasing between very different kinds of people rather than very similar capacity in a very narrow environment of um, focus possibly look like? I mean, I would say the Grateful Dead on a bad night. You know? <laughs> I mean, th those guys, honestly, I mean, they took a fork in the road from most conventional music in the sense that they, they, they were exploring uh, and certainly exfoliated by, you know, early and frequent use of psychedelics on stage together. But, I mean, at that point it became secondary. They're like, oh, we're chasing this thing. And this thing is a of, so of such value to us as musicians, uh, and presumably of such value to our audience, that we're all willing to go through massive possibility of a total shit show and complete decoherence mm -hmm. in search of the magic. Right. And, and, and when it's sent, and this is obviously, I mean, musically is one of the more visceral and kind of obvious places, jazz musicians, anybody else who's getting into the pocket, um, those kinds of experiences. When it happens, it is, it is uh, quintessential. You know, it's, it's the absolute magic. It's why people quit their jobs and follow the bands like that around the country. When it doesn't happen, it's, it's, it's excruciating. And, and so most bands end up doing big stadium shows and having to play the same set list every night. And, you know, there's no magic to be had. It's just 80% of their best. And, and so totally variegated or heterogeneous coherence, um, I think that's actually where we're on the verge of these days. Because in the past, and we, you know, we talk about that, I think, in, in Chapter 3, we say, hey, you know, here are all the reasons why society has kind of put up a perimeter fence. It's like, don't go beyond this. That way, that way lies madness. And it's, you know, Pied Pipers, cults, and communists, you know, are kind of the, the bogeymen of, of the modern West. And, and the idea is that if we're not rational individuals. If I don't have my own, my boundaries, my autonomy, my critical thinking, all of those kind of elements, and I dissolve into the collective, in the past, it's generally been a pre-rational fugue state. I lose my sense of identity, right? I give my money to the cult leader, I quit, I change my name, I run off and join the circus, whatever it would be. And that's been deeply threatening to the post-French Enlightenment, you know, society we built on civil rights and all hinged on the classical neoliberal rational individualism. But where we are these days um, is, is facing the possibility that people can step outside themselves, people can have experiences of ecstasis, people can connect to others and yet maintain their sovereignty and their autonomy at the same time 
that they are experiencing a, a collective awareness and function. And that feels like a relatively emergent property of the 21st century. I don't think it's been necessary. I, I don't know of any historical cultural examples of that being anywhere at scale in the past. That may have been a tiny subset, like the Shaolin monks, or a shamanic tradition, or something like that, but always a tiny subset or fraction of a given society in the substrate. But I've never seen it possible at the levels we're beginning to explore today. That, to me, is arguably one of, if not the only bright spot on the map, as far as you know, trends trends these days, raise our capacity to do both ends. Yeah, so you're speaking to something that's like one of the most important and passionate points for me is that synthesis on the other side of reconciling thesis antithesis is where any adequate solution is. And otherwise you can pendulum between partial truths that end up being not adequate. So um, rugged individualism <laughs> multiplied by uh, 7 billion people with exponential technology. You don't get enough coherence. And there's too, there's too much power of the total group acting on the environment. There's too much power of them being able to act on each other. Not enough coherence, you get a catastrophe scenario. And we're quickly on the path towards that. Getting coherence via homogeneity, right? So we make everybody part of the same hive mind. Borg was uh, a good classic example of the way we didn't want to go, right? Achieved a certain kind of coherence, but at the cost of something too sacred. And so it really has to be, how do we get coherence and increase the meaningful parts of unique self-experience and unique self-expression? So we do get more of the jazz music coherence that, you know, you said it starts out as a shit show because it actually has to go into chaos and then find an emergent order that no one could have designed before. It's really a self-organizing system, right? Yeah. But how do we do that where we don't have to have it 80% shit show and 20% unpredictable, emergent, good. That, that's a very interesting um, proposition. Yeah, and, and my sense is, I mean, we, there are communities of practice that are way further along than the rest of us, you know, and, and Second City and Comedy Improv, you know, the idea that they've got an entire protocol for how to create that emergent thing that no one knows what's going to happen next. And, and I, I would say, you know, Second City is a, is a comparable example to a dead show. Like, it could be way worse than reading watching a perfectly performed Shakespeare piece, or it could be absolutely the best thing ever. And so the yes and, the idea of not negation, not identification, a disidentification, the ability to like, I am only here to advance the bit, and, and we play with yes and, so we don't ever cancel out contributions, we add and riff. Um, IDEO and their human-centered design toolkits and everything else they're doing in the space of innovation. I think there are absolutely bright spots, even some of the Cirque performers and the, and the way Cirque has continually generated absolutely amazing stuff where Guy Le Liberté, their founder, would famously just encourage experimentation for six months, nine months, completely hands-off, wouldn't micromanage any of it. And then there would be the super tight rubber meets the road that's got to work every time, first time, uh, filter at the end of all that. So I think that we can, and you know, to say nothing of special operations or you know, any of those elements. Um, so music, movement, martial arts, um, and, and, and any other kind of movement arts, I think are great places for us to check on that. Um, my sense is as far as a mechanism, like how would we sort of say, hey, here's, here's, a, here's a manifesto, folks. It's just in time, we're gonna get our shit together. Um, I think one of the simplest is to say, in order for us to truly have a global-centric awareness, meaning that we are beyond tribes and nations and identities and all of those kind of things such that, right, we at least are running the psychological 
technical software to be able to play well together without sort of wanting to take the ball and go home at an opportune moment um, is is fundamentally vertical development. And I know that's a space you're deeply attuned to as well, but if we just go back and just state the obvious, which is that for every stage of development up a ladder from egocentric to ethnocentric to global-centric to kind of cosmocentric or whatever you want to say, to just like chunk them super roughly, you have to go one step beyond the level you want to secure and fully inhabit. So in order for a child to become egocentric, they have to go from I'm fused with me and my mommy's boo, and we're just one, one warm, milky organism, to I'm me, that's my mom, and I get to fuck shit up, aka the terrible twos. Right? So I've made my move to egocentric, self-identified by understanding there's an I and there's an other. And we move from we move to ethnocentric once we understand there's a we and an other. It's not we don't affirm the identity of our tribe until we understand who those who those dumbasses are across the river. And so we annex by looking one step beyond. We annex and we repeat. And so what will it what will it take for us to become truly global centric? Well, it's not shopping at Whole Foods and buying a hybrid. <laughs> you know, we, we actually I mean, it would follow that we have to have some glimpse of this little blue marble and our shared humanity. And that's clearly what many of the, you know, one of the, many of the NASA moon astronauts did. Right? They, they had profound state shifting and abiding through the rest of their lives experiences looking back at Earth and going, oh shit, we've gone beyond, right, the borders and all these things. We see the Ganges and the Amazon and the Great Wall of China rotating around, and we come back as humans. Now, we can't all become astronauts yet, right? Branson and Virgin Galactic and Elon are going to take a few more years, and even then the price point is fairly prohibitive for mass scale. But we can become, instead of astronauts of outer space, we could become psychonauts of inner space. We can have post-conventional, ecstatic, non-organized state experiences that can arguably provide something similar, or we wait for the Vatican to disclose, hey, we're not alone. Right? You either have an experience of, of ET, that's a mechanical move to that space, or we cultivate it in the interior dimensions. Okay, so let's talk about states versus stages. Because uh, you, you know, were just alluding at it, most of the book and most of when people think about, well, are they thinking about states, non-ordinary states of experience, flow states, psychedelic states, meditative states, states are states of experience, phenomenological states that are transient, right? They're in the moment states that don't really portend much about what the next states are going to look like. Stages are either integrated baselines or you can at least think of them as kind of the center of the bell curve of the states one tends to inhabit. Mm -hmm. And so we all know about the possibility of someone having an LSD trip or going to Vipassana or whatever it is and having a very high state and then coming back to being an asshole. And yeah, coming back and being an asshole? Yes, coming back to being an asshole. Okay. But their, their core structural stuff is still basically in place and that the state might not have affected the core structures all that much. It, it a little bit might diffuse sometimes. And sometimes it actually just creates more stark contrast for how uh, far along their baseline isn't, and then they get depressed about it. But the, the question I've got for you is, if we're not just looking at states that are semi-magical in terms of what it takes to get into them or not, right? Like the, the leader of Dev crew in the book saying, like, I hope it clicks on. Um, but what are people's integrated stage where they live at elevating? What can you say about the relationship between getting in flow states and advancing in stages of meaningful human development? Yeah, so I mean, I think all of the cautions and caveats about excessive state seeking 
at the expense of stable long-term development and doing the hard things is they all stand uh, and multiply them by three. Those, those are huge. And it's fundamentally why there are very few um, fully developed ecstatic cultures in the world. Most of them go off the rails. Uh, they're almost always a bohemian subset that kind of goes, sneaks off into the woods and, and starts getting shit together and there's usually like wild successes early and then inevitable crash and burn or, or prosecution. And, and that's why, I mean, the, the stasis by its, by its sort of feeling, see, fundamental nature is an unstable uh, phenomenon. Um, so that said, yes to all those and then some, as far as the cautions, as far as the relationship between states and stages. Um, my experience, at least, is that, you know, it's, it's like traversing a mountain range. And you're down in the forest, and you're busting ass, and there's a ton of climbs, and it just feels like one foot up or another indefinitely. And it can become totally demoralizing. And you may even, especially if you don't have signed trails, and you're just wandering through the woods, um, the mental effort combined with the physical challenge can be too much. Now, if we can suddenly pop up to the top of that mountain, pop up above the clouds, pop up above the trees, and go, oh, Three hills over is the river and the beautiful camp we're looking for. Zoop. Now I come back down and I'm back on the trail, or I realize, oh shit, I was walking the wrong direction. Let me get back on course. Let me calibrate my compass. And now when I walk, when I hike, when I have to do the hard things of actually covering that ground on the ground, um, my heart and my mind are a good bit lighter. So there is the ability to check direction and perspective from peak space that I think is invaluable. Uh, another is simply the kind of the Atlas Shrugged notion. Like, the burden of being human is almost crushing in the sense of we're, we're born, we, we, we die, we, we're born and, and we die naked and alone. You know, figure out the rest in between, good luck. And, and the ability in a peak state to have a true sort of ecstatic release, you know, comparable almost to like a physiological orgasm response, and reset our nervous system essentially set down out the burden of existential human awareness just for a few moments, right, where we've blanked out, where we've experienced ego death of some shape or form, can be profoundly restorative. And it doesn't change the fact I still got to shoulder that, that bag of rocks, and I still got to get up and over those mountains, but my, my relationship to that task can be fundamentally changed. So, and then the third piece I would say is information access. So peak states can uh, cultivate well, and I don't mean that in a kind of either puritanical or elitist way, I just mean paying attention to what you're doing while you're there and bringing back as much as you possibly can. Um, that information, that enhanced pattern recognition, right, the lateral connectivity that we can make to say nothing of any quasi-metaphysical suppositions about we getting to access to information of platonic realms or anything else, or morphogenetic fields, blah, 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 take your newest fields, take your pick. Uh, even if we just say within ourselves, we're reading more and paying attention more in real time, um, that information can be wildly useful. Um, and so our ability to take the peaks of uh, you know, the, the peak energy of, of, uh, of an ecstatic experience and then kind of roll it into the valleys of our plateau development and use it to es elevate our mean or our average center of gravity over time um, can be profoundly useful. So I like that. And all three of those are somewhat modulatable, independent of being on the peak. There are things that you can do to increase those, right? So when someone takes the backpack off and they rest, if they stretch, it's going to go better. So there are ways that you can kind of maximize the restorative capacity and the catharsis of it. But I think the most modulatable of those is the information one, the third one you mentioned, which is when you're up at the peak and you get to see the valleys, etc., you can draw a map. 
and you can take that map with you. And the map is not the same as seeing it from up there, but the better job you do at really drawing the map and then really paying attention to it afterwards, the better job you're going to do tangibly navigating the rest of the space. So one thing that I notice is people who uh, do whatever kind of practice or process or technology to have a peak state, how, and then I, I pay attention to the peak state they have compared to how quickly that peak state starts to affect their baseline and what affects, what are the processes other than having the peak state that affect how much it actually changes their baseline is a whole set of different processes other than having the state, right? Like map making is different than Absolutely. climbing off the mountain. So I have some favorite practices here, but I'm curious to hear from you. If someone is doing extreme sports, they're doing psychedelics, they're doing a meditative practice, they're doing transcranial magnetic stem, they're doing neurofeedback, they're doing whatever they're doing for a state, what are the things that they can do that will make that state have the most meaningful, lasting and deep impact on the rest of their life. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the sim. I mean, a, you know, we've just been talking for the last 10, 15 minutes, kind of tops down. What is it like to kind of punch up to the mountain above the cloud, and, and what kind of information? But yeah, the equal, the equal and opposite is also true of oneself, and that's that's all the restorative and sustainable daily practices, which I think can be boiled down to, in a nutshell, purify the vessel, aka our self system. Because the clearer we are, the more integrated and resilient and vitalized we are, generally speaking, I'm talking out of school here, there's no footnotes to this, this is pure personal experience, but it feels like the more we've got our day-to-day -day house in order, the higher fidelity information we can bring back without going back to sleep and forgetting it, or becoming gullible and evaporating like a dream. So the clearer we are, based on our daily restorative practices, um, the better fidelity information we get. Um, and as far as specific practices, I mean, I think the obvious, I mean, in some respects, like my working definition of a flow state or you know, in most non-ordinary states is fundamentally uh, extreme situational awareness coupled to hyper-ergonomics. And I really just mean extreme situational awareness is I'm just paying attention to more of the mystery in real time. And the hyper-ergonomics is just absolute, you know, forever the quest of absolute alignment and efficiency between thought and action. And so, boiled down to further, it's, it's basically extreme, extreme situational awareness can just be boiled down to the bumper sticker, pay attention, and hyper-ergonomics can be boiled down to, and work out the kinks. <laughs> and, and if those are our two day-to-day -day practices, right, those, those do not require going to see a Peruvian shaman or spending nine days in a Vipassana retreat following our nostrils, right? We can be paying attention all the time. That's a forever practice. Um, as is working out the kinks and starting with the levels of our physiology. Because our neurophysiology stores power, you know, it stores everything from obvious biological function to emotional and psychological residue to fundamental, um, you know, clarity of the self system as a tool. So as long as we're doing respiration, the obvious step, and it's like hashtag do the obvious, and things are really slash no skipping steps. You know, so people always, and especially you know, even in your guys' name, neurohacker, biohacker, you know, we're talking about flow hacking. I think it's actually a wild disservice that everybody that bites on that particular world. Because there's no hacking life. Um, we merely show up for it, and are there some faster ways to get to the inevitable clarity of that which must be done? You know? and, and, and certainly daily practices are non-negotiable, and they include body, breath, sexuality, diet, movement, um, connection with absolute nature, um, all the obvious stuff. 
So what you just said is, I think, one of the like foundational classic ones, which is um, having immersive experience and then having practice together are two key poles. If you don't have the immersive experience, you don't really know what to practice, or you're practicing it, but you don't have an internal reference. And so when someone meditates after their vision quest or their psychedelic journey and they have a deeper internal reference of what clarity feels like, what the numinous feels like, their meditation just is potentiated, right? But then if they aren't doing that daily meditation, they aren't going to integrate it and neuroplastically rewire their physiology in the same way. I'm yeah. curious. There's that great book, Zigzag Zen, that was just talking about, you know, West Coast psychedelic culture benefiting much of American Zen and that entire Buddhist movement that came, came to, into being late 60s to 70s, where a lot of people had glimpsed something via pharmacological priming and said, oh, that seems fleeting and elusive. Who's, who's been actually looking at this for the long time and stable, stable state access to stage development? And they kind of all swung to the Asian wisdom traditions, and that was really a huge spike in the blossom of that from the, from the West. And I'll tell you, like, one of my favorite practices and I, I watch what a profound difference this makes. I'm curious your thought on it. Is after someone uh, is pursuing a peak state that's meaningful, and let's just use psychedelics because it's just such a classic example of someone being able to change their state so profoundly in a way that they didn't kind of developmentally earn, um, which means that the likelihood of them integrating much is low. So the practice that I just find tremendously valuable for people is that when they're coming down off the height of their mushroom journey or uh, whatever kind of psychedelic they were on, pretty much as soon as they're capable, before they're even all the way back, for them to start journaling their insights uh, ends up serving as a profound bridge between the non-ordinary state of experience and their ordinary state of experience later so that their ordinary state can actually remember and access. It's kind of like writing your dream when you wake up in the morning, because if you don't, you just completely lose it, because that theta brain state and then the beta they get to later are so different that they don't even have a bridge. But the first thing groggily in the morning, they still have a bridge, and then they're able to start accessing better. So having people write down the insights of the nature of reality as they see it in those moments, and then their kind of intentions for themselves and their commitments to action based on it in that state and then read it an hour later, and then read it a couple hours later, and then consciously practice reaccessing it, I find something like a thousand X acceleration on stage development from state experiences. I'm curious your thought on it. Yeah, thousand percent. Uh, that's exactly what we practice as well in any of our uh, contemplative, meditative, exciting states. Uh, and got, I've got five years of voice recordings. <laughs> it's like it's like stunned at 2017. Okay, you know, like here we go. Uh, while it's still absolutely clear, and there's times where it slips away, it's an elusive fucker, and you're like, wait a second, I had it, I had it, I had it. Um, let me make sure there's no way I'm going to drop that jewel. And the recording of it annexes it again. I have no idea even what that moment was like. Go back and listen to it a day later or whatever. Um, and then at the point you just groove in your car and the grooves and waking state and you're on that way, so that you can access that specific filing cabinet and not that you don't have to go reattain the state to have access to the information. So um, we're huge fans of that. And another maybe even just in between steps if you're doing it collectively, is if people are going off into their own experiences and then gather back when folks are more manageable, just a circle of just sharing story. Hey, yes. this is my Mr. Terry's wild ride, what was yours? And then moving into general and moving into those elements as well. But yeah, I mean, definitely the meaning, the unpacking, I think kind of what we've said as well once upon a time, you know, the, 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 
glimpsing of the void, I'm paraphrasing my friend, but the glimpsing of the void is what it is, right? When you're in it, it is ineffable and obvious. It's the unpacking after the fact that gets wildly problematic. Right. Right. The people, if there's ego hijacks, if there, I mean, we are storytelling monkeys, so we love to make shit up. And we love to go well beyond the confines of our actual phenomenological experience to then assert meaning and motive, and, 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 we, we, and we mistake opinions for facts, and it all just goes off the rails in a heartbeat. And so many, many people believe the suchness, the exquisite, the exquisite pudding, as Tom Wolfe, I think, once called it. Right? <laughs> many people jump into the pudding, not everybody can remember the recipe. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's some unwritten rule that if you grew up in a uh, Judeo-Christian culture and then you start doing ecstatic practices, you have to think you are Jesus at some point. Um, <laughs> in the process of second coming or Moses. It seems like at least two-thirds of the men, not women, but at least two-thirds of the men that I have encountered who didn't actually have a good support system guiding them all had ego hijacks where they didn't actually understand that this is a transpersonal experience. And so then their personality kicked back on and said, well, shit, does that mean I'm God? I'm the, the whole truth that I apprehended. So figuring out how to interpret the experience is a big deal. Yeah, nice. I mean, that, 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 that's our last chapter, right? It starts with the, the, the Jerusalem complex, right? Uh, a glimpse of something that, in the wisdom traditions, is known as Christ consciousness does not mean you're the second coming. And I think in general what you mentioned that whatever we're accessing, we're accessing through our perceptual filters and our perceptual processes, which means our whole process of meaning making from our childhood to our culture to our language. And so the more that we do not just the state experience, but the cleanup, right? So that's kind of in the wake-up side, but the cleanup side, which is look at all of the meaning making that is dysfunctional that I have, both from poor education and from trauma, and clear that up, then I become able to actually apprehend through cleaning filters. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, my sense is, I mean, certainly like, I kind of did a little bit of, you know, just kind of historical sleuthing to be like, okay, is there a coherent there, there? meaning like, uh, are, enough, are, are enough adepts in enough different traditions punching through to similar locations? Um, in the numinous and describing it in roughly comparable translatable terms. And while there's things like the Tao of Physics and all those kind of synthetic books that say, yes, there is, you also take a look, I mean, anyone from very long, the kind of Australian Tantra teacher to Osho to Ken Wilbur to, you know, like, like to throw way down the stack, Ron Krishna, you name it, right? You, you realize, you're like, oh, these guys are all really sort or Adi or Alistair Crowley, you, you read their stuff, and you're like, okay, or Gurdjieff, and you're like, okay, they are barking up similar trees in, in, in roughly proximal forests, but they're different. So, and the same thing with physicists. You know, you've got all these different interpretations of, of quantum theoretical interpretation, Benny Wells, Kevin Hahn, and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, this is just a bunch of dudes giving their level best guess at pinning down the quantum thumb. And, and I think at that point, that's where we kind of get to move into um, what we talk about in the book, is like the, the premise of an agnostic Gnosticism. The idea that, hey, there's enough of us now that are all getting gnosis of the non-ordinary that one person with their hair on fire does not get to hijack the mic anymore. And as a result, it's a little bit of a kind of big data um, crowdsource project versus, versus a singular monolithic um, and potentially premature truth claim. This is the way it is or what's actually exclusively like.
And you mentioned you know, it being a, a big data crowdsource process. We can imagine that everyone is apprehending something, but through their own whatever distortion filters and perspectives and and that there's probably some signal in all of it. There's probably some noise in all of it. And the signal is probably partially overlapping and partially different. So we have to go through some process of being able to amplify the signal, separate out the noise, then synthesize the signal and see what we find, right? And then, and that's maybe a fair epistemology of both the inner and outer processes. And, but that's very much, you know, synthesis is a key thing that we're saying again here, which when you said the yes and, it doesn't mean yes to all of it because there might be a lot of noise, right? Like this particular person's picture of the building that is the west side of the building is going to be a different picture than the east side, but it might be a picture of the west side that also has a fisheye lens that's just distorting the shit out of it, so there's still some truth in it. We have to correct for distortion and then synthesize the partial pictures. Um, that seems to be at the essence of what we need to do for meaning-making kind of everywhere is our ability to separate signal from noise and then synthesize signal, which we seem to be horribly bad at. But when you're talking about the ESN here, so do we want to get completely out of ourself? Or do we want to upgrade the nature of our self and ego and understand what our unique identity has to contribute and be it well? Do we want to have no sense of time or do we want to be better at delayed gratification and planning things that flow within time? Okay. But, uh, I mean, you're obviously right. you're, you're, you're setting up questions you already know the answers to, but uh, I, will, I will humor our audience and, and, and play the foil. Um, so, you know, my sense is, is it's, 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 a, it's a polarity or a dialectic right, right, between the two guardrails of cultivating presence and absence. And the absence is the post-rational, post-egoic, hey, I, I'm at the dashboard of what's arising, and I'm not getting hijacked or sucked into any given sort of reality tunnel, to use Philip Fiddick's kind of language. Right? I'm, just, I'm just observing them all. I can tap in, I can go into one, I can come back out, but I know I'm about them. So that's the absence of it. And, and so that many, particularly the Dante kind of, kind of faith, faith practices, etc., will cultivate that and even privilege it. But then the opposite, particularly if you have a wife and kids, is presence can actually show the fuck up. In, this, in these meat suits with all the contradictions, beauty and pain, uh, and, and joy and sensation of being fully in this moment. So, and, and, and never the twain shall meet, and yeah, between these two banks, Close our lives. So it feels to me like it's, it's the dual track uh, of cultivating both. And not that many folks pull that one off. They almost always over or underprivileged. This is actually what I really appreciate about um, your work and at Flow Genome is most of the kind uh, of writing that I've seen focused on flow is very much on one side of that dialectic with lots of accidents possible. Um, and you, you speak with nuance to what comprehensive, holistic human development and not just personal but also interpersonal um, development looks like, which I really uh, appreciate. So I want to get into, it's it's very easy to be hard on the prefrontal cortex, right? And the default mode network, and let's just say we, we want hypofrontality, transient hypofrontality, less prefrontal cortex action. Um, I would like to hear from you as maybe, you know, one of the people that most people right now are understanding the benefits of hypofrontality from, a user's manual for the prefrontal cortex of what its actual evolutionary relevant job is, and rather than just turn it off, what making, what, what learning how to use prefrontal cortex better might look like. Yeah. 
For sure. I mean, no, that's such a great question. And, and, and to be clear, right, I mean, we have to we have to pour a forty on the curb for our homie PFC, right? I mean, goddess, we are actually communicating through amazingly silicon-chip fiber optic communications, and without them, we wouldn't have any of that. We'd be sucking our thumbs and jerking off in a corner. So, um, so you know, amen to complexity. Um, and and you know, as, as we talk about in the book, the challenge with the advent of hyper-rational individualism was that we just didn't build an off switch for it. And that gave us the Woody Allens of the world. You know, the idea of, I can't get out of my own hamster wheel. Uh, and this is now running me into the ground. And there's actually a book called Because of the Self, I think it's out of Duke, um, that speaks to exactly that. It's just, just we, did, we forgot to install the off switch. So you, we've got two choices. And you know, another metaphor is like, you know, our neurotic storytelling, always on in a critical voice, is somewhat like a, a non-trained puppy that's like shredding our slippers and in the corner. Like, that can be the best bird dog or avalanche dog ever. If we just learn to train them, we don't need to get rid of our egos or our prefrontal cortex. We just need to actually put them in the right spot and engage them productively and constructively and not mistake that voice or that point of view for the whole enterprise. So, so one of the simplest ways to think about it is kind of, you know, everyone's familiar with the 80-20 uh, breakdown of Pareto's um, idea that, that um, we could flip the script. If right now we're spending 80% of our time psychologically, egoically processing our entire existence, and only 20%, sometimes paying attention to the entire rest of our self-systems and others and our relationships and everything else, um, let's just flip it and say, hey, now let's only spend 20% of our bandwidth on our psychological narrative perception and processing and our identity maintenance, and spend 80% optimize, maintaining and optimizing our biopsychosocial self systems, and that's from up on the dashboard. It's basically saying, you know, go from operating system, this is I am me behind my eyes, to just user interface. I'm just managing all the apps that are open in my reality. And you can do that by A, becoming vitalized so that my vigilance centers are not in fight or flight. If I have enough, if I have enough food, water, relationships, safety, security, belonging, and overall just literally metabolic vitality. A lot of the chattering monkey mind stuff just tends to go quiet. And we've all experienced that, whether that's la petite more and the orgasm, the silence after orgasm that the French you know, famously talk about to just an amazing night or a great vacation or whatever. We just realize, oh, that stuff just got quiet at some point. I stopped noticing. The other thing is, is that we can train, and we don't want to become blank zombies like the loonies, <laughs> we, we, we say, okay, what, I still have to engage humanity with that 20% I've now reduced my psychology to. So what are the maps, the models, and the virus scans to make sure I'm not making the thinking errors, heuristic traps, cognitive biases, common known issues, kind of stuff. What are those three things that I can run that let me deal with, you know, most of the human experience? And there's certain stuff, you know, births, deaths, marriages, you know, tragedy, success, failure, war, they just require all of us to show up unfiltered and unbuffered. But an awful lot of what passes for human social behavior is just the same repetitive loops again and again and again, and the same obvious thinking traps. And if we can run, clean, you know, upgrade our software, um, we can massively reduce the role of our prefrontal cortex, put it in the right direction, remove, keep it occupied so it's not over, overclocking our processor at all time, and bring a lot more of that energy, vitality, choice, and action into our bodies, into our hearts, into the rest of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're saying two complementary, very important things, which is 
there are parts of ourself other than prefrontal cortex, other than self-aware rational mind that are super important to develop. And that does mean that that particular experience of self has to chill out a chunk of the time. So it is partially less, and it's also partially better. It doesn't just need to chill out, it actually needs trained um, to do its actual role well. So it's actually both about increasing our kinesthetic awareness and our sensory motor awareness and our embodiment, as well as training our uh, rational abstraction, visual logic brain to process more effectively the things that it's supposed to process. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about just the pace, the, the bitstream or, or frame rate of life these days, it's absolutely insane. There's not another human that's ever been wired up for existence that's ever had to deal with the amount of data we, we consume and or floods process in a given day. So it's not too much of a stress to say we're all, you know, all experiencing perpetual post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And when we're very much heads on stage, when we're just tottering around, sitting in chairs, strapped into seats, staring at screens, and we're just literally like up in our heads, our bodies just become transport systems for our three pounds of gray matter, the only place to store that energy is in our domes, and they loop around like, like, like a hamster on meth. Um, but if you think about it, it's like, it's like having a solar panel out in the midday sun in Arizona with a golf cart battery. Like the energy coming from the sun and transferred to that battery is going to overcomplete the cells in a hobby. And you end up with a broken, acidic puddle that used to be your energy storage system, a battery, a golf cup. If you add an array of batteries that can actually hold and store the sun, you've got something useful. And so the same thing that happens particularly with people seeking peak states these days that they don't have any business seeking, meaning they haven't done any of the developmental practices, they're not, they're not operating or training within the lineage, they have gates and checks and balances, they're just going for it, shooting the moon, whether they should be or not. And what happens then is they overclock their processes. And if they engage in embodiment practices, uh, any forms of functional practice, functional movements to yogas, that whole neck of woods, including respiration and everything else, then you've got, pl- you've got heat sinks, you've got places to store that juice that you've just gone and grabbed under the jumper cable and don't know what to do with, without cooking yourselves. And yeah. so that's another thing that that D, it, put, it, it basically puts less strain or pressure on the prefrontal cortex. If it's the only game in town to make sense of everything that's going on here, you may find yourself engaged in movement, katas, mudras, asanas, right? There, there, there's movement, breath, song, chanting, like there's lots of ways to move higher energy states other than just in cogitation, and cogitation is arguably the weakest, slowest, most vulnerable link in that whole set. So I have an interesting question for you. Um, with regard to the kind of information processing that the SEALs need to do, or that the athletes need to do, or the jazz processors need to do, yeah. uh, they need to be processing real-time data quite quickly. Okay? Um, so the speed of process really matters, and prefrontal cortex is not that good at that. Also, prefrontal cortex is pretty good at abstraction, and they don't really need abstraction that much in that moment. They need something much closer to um, sensory input, information processing without that much abstraction into response process. Let's compare this to, say, developing fundamentally new science, where we new scientific insights, where we actually don't need that much rate, rate of process to immediate sensory data, but we need very high degrees of abstraction. So, say that we compare Woody Allen um, 
or the caricature of Woody Allen as the example of uh, someone stuck in prefrontal cortex hyperclocking but not actually doing anything all that useful, right? Like it's, it's more like having a hammer and beating your thumb with it rather than hitting the nail. It's not the problem of hammer sucking, it's just not knowing how to use a hammer very well. Um, and so it's mostly looking at fears that aren't really there and trying to solve problems that it's making up and things like that. Let's compare that case to Einstein, um, Ramanujan, Tesla, you know, etc. And say the people that really advanced our abstract understanding of the nature of reality, that in ways that actually instantiated into technology and process. What, what would you say about the kinds of processes that develop those capacities and how relevant embodiment stuff specifically is? Because we do know very interesting things that say Einstein did that were other than being in his prefrontal cortex, right? Where he would kind of zone out, go into a more right brain state, a more other than conscious mind state. But most of the time, I mean, we, we can look at guys like, like Paul Erdős who you know, were almost a savant in terms of their ability to do graph theory and mathematics and almost had no awareness of having a body at all. So talk to me about what your thoughts are of hypercapacity that's actually meaningful in the areas of um, abstraction-oriented cognition and the, maybe the difference of those developmental pathways. Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a long and beautiful setup um, to a you know a sort of almost ineffable question, which is sort of you know, fundamentally what way does genius come from in all its shapes and sizes? Um, and you know, my, what came to mind as you were talking, the short answer is don't even begin to know. And I'm not sure. I'm just not sure that we collectively, uh, as sort of combination of academics, lay people, practitioners, really have begun to pass that. For all the obvious reasons, academic silos, micro specialization, etc. That's a very synthetic question you're asking. Um, but you know, what came to mind is it's like it's almost like fast twitch and slow twitch ecstasis. You know, like in the in the, in the immediate time where there's very specific situational and physical requirements, I'm actually probably chunking kinetic patterns. Like I know what to do next, and whether that was Tiger Woods back before his bender and his ability to sort of effortlessly connect golf, you know, golf swing stroke and, and you know, club and balls and magic, um, or or Federer on, on a great day, um, or seals navigating complex battle space. Um, those kinds of things. Uh, I mean, regardless, like there's, there's the body of practice that precedes it that is necessary but not sufficient. There is at the moment of requirement. Shifting state from prefront, prefrontally cortically dominated into whatever other faster decision making processes are available. And my hunch is that they're going to be different based on context, based on person, environment, objective, and then, you know, and the normal stack of genetic blah, 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 blah. Um, and but the, the, ability, the key is you have the foundational practices, so you've acquired the skills and chunk recognition as your tool set. You then shift out of prefrontal cortical dominance to get to the workspace, right, in an ecstatic state. And can you then do either in rapid real time or in the more elongated now of rumination and reflection the work you were born to do? And, and beyond, I know that's a relatively humanistic metaphorical model, but that would be how it could be barring some super badass coming up with something. 
ADP split test and an empirical study. Well, I actually really like you saying fast twitch and slow twitch because the time scale matters, right? Like, even in terms of thinking about cognitive process, when you look at playing fast chess or how fast one can solve a Rubik's Cube, it's a fairly constrained domain of what success looks like where speed then really matters. Whereas, like, it's famously known... Can you still hear me? Okay, cut out for a moment. Restart. Um, it's kind of famously known that uh, Niels Bohr was considered a almost retardedly slow thinker. Um, because people would say something to him and he would just really not have a response in the moment. He'd have to go sit on it for two days. And then his response would almost always be a couple orders of magnitude more insightful and profound than most people's responses. So there was some slower process, but it was going through more domain and coming up with more interesting, relevant things. So I think that's actually kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid, right? The wax on, wax off. And then that, that becomes so ingrained as, again, kinetic chunk recognition, right? That it's in, it's, it's in Daniel San's body. I mean, if anybody remembers Stranger in a Strange Land, that old sci-fi book, right? Valentine Michael Smith, who's got yoga capabilities, raised on Mars, comes back to Earth. And at first, he's so sensitive to the human experience. He has to grok thing, grokking, if anybody knows that verb, like to understand something in its utter complexity. That's what he would do. And sometimes he'd go into like a hibernetic state and be at the bottom of a pool for three days just to understand what a woman said to him. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, that ability to go slow to go fast, uh, I think is, is absolutely an element of both mastery and skillful repeat access to non-ordinary states. When I think about the, the scientists and philosophers that really had the most profound contributions, um, they all had some practice practices that I'm aware of, of accessing non-ordinary states of experience. Some of them were physical, but many of them were Einstein playing his violin, um, or Bucky Fuller going out and rowing and getting in kind of a physical um, flow state, or even just going into expanded meditative states. They did figure out how to turn off the uh, conscious bandwidth that can only process, here's our data, here's our axioms, here's deductive or inductive reasoning on it, to then be able to allow the faster processing that can do pattern analysis to process all of that and come up with insights. So I think I, th I think it, it's interesting to think about like all of the different ways of developing flow for different applications there are. Yeah, and then there is almost always some degree of embodiment. And that doesn't mean that everybody needs to or ought to be a crossfitter. It just means there is something to do with fine motor, gross motor, um, respiration, movement, even the bathing, the famous shower or bath, um, even free diving, which is you know how deeply can you how deep can you dive without scuba tanks? Um, which you might say, oh, that's not anything like an extreme sport. But you're like, oh no no, no. you you're, you're going down where you can't breathe at all. You're experiencing pressure. Uh, and, and, and changes in light, and you're moving through a medium we weren't born in. It's highly embodied meditation. And what we have found is there's three typical parameters that are the sort of, you can combine them, or you can have at least one at a time, but one or, one or more is almost always pre present as far as the embodiment piece. And it's typically intensity, and that would be the extreme sports athlete or the martial artist. Like, I'm about to get hit or die, I'm paying super attention, and that jacks me into it. Um, duration, the loneliness or zen of the long distance runner, 
right? So I'm literally just exhausting all of my resistances and all my typical structures and default habits or repetition. And if anybody remembers Mr. Adelon, that, that, that retelling of the Arthurian legends where uh, one, of the, one of the women, maybe it's one of the falls into a trance state with, on the loom or at a potter's wheel or gardening, anything that it, it's a step in a movement, even, even slave spirituals and work gangs, where there was the repetitious movement of field planting or rock busting. Right, any of those so, so intensity, duration, and repetition um, typically are some of the fastest ways in through an embodied hack. Mm -hmm. So, I'm interested. I know the last third of the book you uh, discuss these topics. Why do you think our ordinary state of consciousness sucks so much for so many people currently? Um, how much of that is what you would just say is human condition, and how, but specifically, how much is specific societal dynamics, uh, education, media, etc., and then foreshadowing what could it look like if human development were being supported closer to optimally at a macro structure level? <laughs> what a what a funny question! I love it. Um, so, I mean, to unpack the problem or limitations of a culture that has evolved with all its parameters, education, health, wellness, community, etc., identity, um, around an overactive waking state um, would be several more podcasts in and of themselves. But let's just say we did, and this is what we got, and it wasn't all on purpose. Um, so there's a lot of contraindications and side effects us creating that laser beam of the hyper-rational hyper individual separate self. Um, but that said, what could it look like, right? Is that, I mean, I think part of the reason it's so problematic is, like we said, is we just don't have an off switch. So it's not that, that specific spotlight of our rational waking identities is profoundly useful. It's just blinding and profoundly fatiguing um, when it never gets turned off. And the other part is, I mean, I, I remember some friends of ours have a have a group of in Boulder, and we don't get a bunch of stickers slapped up all over the bar. And one of them is "Don't die wondering," you know. And you, and you, and you think like that. I, that always stuck with me, which is like, no one at this point in time should be wondering if there's more. If you're still wondering that, or you've just kind of superstitiously or obediently took someone else's word for it, or you found yourself in the post World War II existential wasteland of it's meaningless and it was all a sham. Um, go find, go find your white whale. Go find uh, that meaning because once you have that, and whatever it turns out to be for you, it is attainable. You can go conduct that experiment seven ways to Sunday at this point. Um, and once you've found that, then we get to come back and we get to reacquaint ourselves, just like Dorothy with Auntie M and, and you know, and and, and all. The work hands on, the, on the, the farm in Kansas, she sees them again for the first time after getting to experience ours and the yellow brick road, right? Then she comes back and says, ah, this is home. This is what I want. And that is obviously the Campbellian classic hero, you know, home away home. And the ability to come back, see with fresh eyes and really celebrate the tools, capabilities, capacities and opportunities of being in the here now together. Um, so sort of stay awake and build stuff. Is another kind of motto on that, which is the building stuff comes down here. This is in 3D where we push matter around and make you know make the good, the true, and beautiful. 
And if we can have that relationship to it versus feeling that it's our, it's our prisoners. You know, the idea that, that sort of the keys, the keys to the kingdom, right, chasing ultimate meaning or the numinous are the keys to our cage, our neurotic confines and constructs. That to me is, is, a, is a beautiful invitation and opportunity uh, that we can unlock both at once and then reconcile them all in next level consciousness and culture. So for people who are interested in getting beyond wondering, uh, obviously there's a lot of things that you talk about in the book. People can go to Vipassana, go to a holotropic breathwork session, go do a Sundance, right? But um, you have you have an online kind of introductory training process as well as flow camps. Can you talk a little bit about what someone would experience there and how they access those? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges with ecstatic culture and practice in the past and why it was kept so close to the best by the communities that did practice it is because it's volatile and dangerous and, and, and that carries through to present day many of the techniques and practices that are the easiest or most on the outside potent are sanctioned uh, on a whole host of levels. So our attempt with our online trainings is to say, hey, wherever you are in the world, you can start by starting in your own life. And we do app-based six-week digital training, one's called Flow Fundamentals, and it's just saying, hey, can you just take 60 minutes every day and just you know, in three-minute, five-minute, ten-minute chunks and just use that to optimize your rest recovery, how you pay attention, and how you can start beginning to get just more conversant, more skillful in baby steps, mild to middling first days. Uh, and then we do you know, more advanced training both online but also in person. Because you told me about stuff. some stats from the online training that I thought were fascinating. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we've been using the FlowScale inventory, which was developed by Dr. Susan Jackson. She's in Australia, but she partnered with Mihai Chitsan-Mihai, the kind of godfather of flow research at the University of Chicago. So that's the sort of academically validated instrument. And in six weeks, an hour a day, people are experiencing, and it varies obviously for the individual, but on average, a 78% increase in incidence of the flow, mastery, absorption, and task at hand, all the good things that we would associate with that kind of a peak state of performance. And that's, that's massively less than the DARPA studies and some of those that have had one-off studies with archers or snipers or various other people and kind of medical interventions. But to say, but 78% is still a hell of a lot. <laughs> and to be DIYing at home 60 minutes a day over six weeks, not just a session, um, is pretty useful. Yeah. So there's not a lot of things in our lives where we can just do a three-quarter upgrade um, on that kind of and what about the in-person training? Yeah, that's obviously my passion um, coming from um, mountain guiding, surf rescue, uh, all of those kinds of elements where for me those kind of environments have always taught myself and, and people we've guided and been with so much. So we do everything from um, completely immersive backcountry expeditions, and that's in the canyons of Utah, the soft, you know, so canyoneering. Um, or kite surfing and saltwater fly fishing, or backcountry skiing, or any of these things that are really alive practices and give us very direct feedback, plus there are tons of fun. Um, no one has to learn the PowerPoint deck. So we give just enough neuroscience to be dangerous, and then let's go out and actually be in a real classroom, writing real stuff. And then our uh, float dojos, which are fundamentally, you know, DD's in dome, Circus Lay meets uh, X Games meets sort of quantified self and a little bit of Burning Man, sort of, hey, what are these playgrounds? What does 21st century optimized wellness look like? Not just counting steps and calories, but how do we integrate our bodies and our brains in service of 
being that much more uh, prone and capable of fun state management and collaborative physical culture together. So you've spent decades studying these practices, processes, technologies, training small groups like SEALs or Red Bull athletes or whatever, and have only in the last few years started these kind of wider offerings. So if we fast forward, if you were to have the kind of fullest success you could want to have for bringing technologies of ecstasis to the world, and you could have both transformation happen to existing adults as well as new humans growing up in a different kind of environment, what could that look like? Yeah, well, I mean, our organizational mission is that by 2020, we have open sourced the genome, or kind of core building blocks of the flow state, or just non-ordinary state peak performance, to the world. So that's one stake in the ground we put down a, a while back. And our intention is that this is this is human birthright stuff. There's no, there's no excuse for people trying to hug it or hide it or patent it. Um, so that's a very strong idea, and we're working already with lots of schools, senior centers, veteran centers dealing with PTSD, etc. where we want this, this, these tools and tech to be out there. Um, and, and if you want to do like, like Linux, there's, there's, an organ, there's a company called Red Hat, which is a very successful computer software and a consulting company. They, they work on Linux, and you're like, well, how do you make a business on open source? Well, if you've got some high hard problem you really want to solve, you maybe pick up a thing called Red Hat. And so that's kind of been one of our guiding things, is let's open source information. But let's, let's be a place that if people want to come and really do deep dive trainings, they can. And hopefully we're a very helpful and reliable resource in their ecosystem. And so my goal by 2020 would be to have 50,000 impact leaders, entrepreneurs, teachers, coaches, academics, uh, doctors, practitioners, people who are the closest to this, in that kind of professional ecosystem in their reach, to their communities. You want to rely on that and have 50,000 people that are conversant and flow tools, technologies, and state management out there in the world doing their own kind of awesome. And we're already getting to see that at scale. And that's probably the most humbling and inspiring thing about it is just the number of amazing professional folks that have taken these tools and tech and already know exactly what to do with them. And they get back to it. It's like, oh, by the way, you haven't heard from me in six months, nine months, a year. But here's, here's, the, here's the seven things that I've just scaled. Um, and it's, it's completely, completely lighting up the folks that are going to experience it. So that's it. It's a cascade effect. Right. So I'm curious because I haven't um, asked you this yet. We've been talking about increasing performance, right, and elite elite performance across a number of axes. But what can accessing non-ordinary states of experience do for trauma? Um, various forms of psychological and physi physiological trauma. Do you all work with that? And I know there are medical claims you can't make for legal reasons, but just what what does this field offer for the future of um, decreased suffering? Yeah, I mean, that's actually, that's, that's the foundational bit. Right? We, we, we all come to any of these sort of improvement processes or projects banged up. And some of us, uh, sadly and tragically, much worse than others. And, and unfortunately, I, I get to make all the claims because this is not our research, right? But it's out there in the public sphere, peer review papers, etc. Um, what I think is most fascinating, probably the most heartwarming piece about this, because a lot of people will read about Google or Red Bull or, or Navy SEALs or some elite population go, oh yeah, that's fine for those guys, but what about what about me? What about the rest of us? And the studies on trauma have really shown across the board that experiences, even as brief as a single session, even as I mean, you really want to like stopwatch it, even down to 15 minutes to a few hours, can permanently and 
irreversibly, or at least sustainably, I'll say that, um, shift trauma and relieve not just symptoms, but see their root causation. And that's true for, I mean, again, use substances as an easy go-to because they, you, know, you ingest a given compound, it tends to have a relatively predictable result within certain parameters. Um, this is an easy example, which is the FDA is just, I think, I mean, they're in trials, in, in, uh, third phase trials right now on legalizing, they've been, done, they've been done tons of studies already with the use of MDMA, uh, which is an pathogen or helps people, again, in neurochemistry that just gives safety, security, belonging, openness uh, to trauma survivors. And then in conjunction with skilled trauma therapy and guidance, people are able to revisit a traumatic experience but without the nervous system sort of inflammation that flight response. And, or, or more to the point, uh, usually freeze flight response. And, and they get to sort of breathe through it, work with it, and release it. And again, in conjunction with therapeutic support. Now that's relatively straight. I mean, the results are profound um, to the point of you know, Iraqi war vets and things like that being cured in as little as one session compared to even the protocol, which was three, which was ironically negatively affecting their stats because that counted as a dropout, but some people never came back because they were done. They were like, oh, good. See ya. <laughs> I'm going to go live my life, which is amazing. Um, but what's really interesting, I mean, that's, that's one cool test case, but what I find far more interesting is that there's a program at Camp Pendleton that is using uh, surfing as a trigger for flow states, so bobbing up and down the ocean, paddling and catching waves, all of the embodied experience, exposure to nature, all that good stuff. Um, and they're experiencing virtually identical clinical responses. It just takes up to five weeks versus one to three, like four sessions. And they're also doing similar ones with meditation, sort of a, a very straightforward form of mindfulness. And that's taking 10 to 12 weeks and getting comparable results. So what you realize is, oh, mechanism of action. It could be pharmacology, kind of one one. It could be embodiment and action, like surfing. It could be mindfulness and introspection. But the fact that you're getting out of your 21st century normal, the tired wire stress, people are being steered into non-ordinary states, that's letting them root, root, like just be doing a cold reboot on their nervous systems and potentially the psychological narratives and recurring loops that gene off that, and then have choice. So these moments of like, okay, now I'm not being, like the, the tail is not wagging the dog. The trauma tail is not wagging the dog of my life. Now I get to choose what direction I'm going. And that feels profoundly empowering and incredibly hopeful. And there are 25 million Americans that are suffering acutely from PTSD. And that's not just war vets, although there's gajillions of them who've spoke the longest, the longest period of extended multi-conflict war in human history that's just been taking place and it's not quite done yet. And let's say nothing of child abuse, sexual trauma, uh, and then just any others, which people don't even necessarily know what they're going through or experiencing, but there's low levels and mid-grade traumas that people are just accumulating over time. So the ability to change the channels of our consciousness, to change the knobs and levers of our states, and to actually give us a reset. Basically, I mean, it's, it's the wake up, girl, up, shut up, kind of, you know, hat trick, which is punches us through the clouds, lets us wake up. It shows us where we're broken and lets us grow up. And then it gets clear on what we're here to do, without the bang and scrapes and coping mechanisms and lets us show up. And, and, and that, that three-step process feels super needed um, and profoundly useful as it is forward. So I imagine people can get Stealing Fire, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere. With regard to finding out more about uh, FlowCamp and the other opportunities to go deeper, where should they go? 
That's a great question. Uh, we are not advertising FlowCamp. It's basically on an invitational basis. Uh, there is one that's happening this August, the 20th to the 25th, in Utah, on the top of the mountain. And for those of you that have read or by then will have read Slinging Fire, we actually describe the summit event uh, that, is, that takes place up there with a thousand person preparing dinner and all those kind of things. That's the very same spot. Um, and it's going to be basically glamour camping with a flow dojo circus. So uh, tons of fun. Uh, we have an entire team that is hired with that right now already. And uh, yeah, absolutely. If you're feeling called to kind of train in the community and get the absolute short list of the stickiest, best in, best in class practices, it's 15 years of life's work and, and play uh, pointed in that direction. And we're also doing a backcountry uh, light mountaineering course in October in the summit. So the simplest would just be you can reach out to uh, support at flowgenomeproject.com and just ask, and we will send you the magic with the Monka Golden Tickets. And finding out about the online training is just right at the website, flowgenomeproject.com? Yes, flowgenomeproject.com, and there's literally a tab in the top right that says train. Pull that down, and there's a free flow profile that you can take. It's one of the largest optimal cycle diagnostics right now. I think there's probably over 100,000 people that have taken it. And that's the, the beginning of the rabbit hole. Hey, how do I uniquely get into flow? And here's some of the pitfalls and potentials of my personality type, and then also the flow fundamentals training, which is right there and, and available as well. Tommy, thank you for being here today. This was fun, and I hope many people from the kind of interested in neurotech, neurohacking community that aren't already get uh, interested in the offerings that you have. It does feel like you've done a really uniquely good job of synthesizing a tremendous amount of ancient and modern across many different developmental process um, uh, technologies, and I'm happy you're doing that. Awesome. Great conversation. Thank you. All right. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights. For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes.